All right, there we go. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today is Dr. Lori Marvis, and she is gonna talk to you guys about how to conquer insulin resistance. Please welcome her back to the show. Hi, Dr. Marvis, how are you? I'm good, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here as always. Of course. So first, before you tell us how to conquer insulin resistance, maybe you can really explain what it is, because I'm not sure everybody knows. Sure. Well, it's interesting. So when we speak about diabetes or we speak about inflammation or we see, you know, changes in cholesterol and different things, we really think about need to think about kind of more of the root causes. But what's interesting about insulin resistance, meaning that the body doesn't utilize the hormone insulin that's produced by the pancreas very well, and a variety of reasons, and I'm going to go into all that, um, really is kind of a root cause. And what's really interesting when you look at things that we can do to reverse it or improve it, it's many of the things that will help like diabetes and um, let's say cardiovascular disease, obesity, inflammation, all the things that we already know we should be doing, but we're going to look at it through the lens of insulin resistance because it really is kind of a feeder into many of the chronic diseases that we see. So instead of, it's kind of like the commonality. So if you, one of my illustrations is a tea, tree trunk, right? So you have the roots of what's causing insulin resistance and the resist, insulin resistance, how it causes these different types of diseases. And so it's kind of just kind of helps bring things into focus a little bit to help people maybe change, um, you know, saying, oh, I got to go see my diabetes doctor. Oh, I got to go see my cardiovascular doctor. Oh, I got to go see, you know, my kidney doctor. Well, maybe we should be looking at kind of a deeper root. Um, well, I, guess, I guess the vernacular or the, the description, I think that'll help people kind of understand a little bit more what's going on. So it's really fascinating. So I've been really enjoying um, teaching people about this. It really gets to what I, I loved working with diabetics anyway. So this kind of gets to the root of that as well. Well, because that's something you actually see improve or even reversed, I imagine. Yes, 100%. Yeah. But it's interesting because you can look at insulin resistance and you'll even see signs and symptoms of it. And I'll go over labs and different things that you should be looking at even before you have prediabetes. So it's really fascinating. So if we go even further upstream than having to you know react to numbers, um, this might motivate people to even do something sooner when we'll see even an even greater response, which is amazing always. Nice. Can't wait to learn more. Okay. Well, I will share my screen here. Um, I'm going to leave it in this. It's not going to be the presenter uh, presentation mode just because I need to look at my other notes because it's it can be kind of uh, lots going on here. So let me grab this. Here we go. Um, basically, yeah, I really want to talk to you about conquering insulin resistance, but we're going to get, first of all, to what is actually insulin resistance, which is a great question, right? So, you know, previously it was earlier described as metabolic syndrome. And many times people would say, okay, that's, you know, meet certain criteria. There's different, um, well, I lost my notes here. One sec here. There it is. Um, there is, uh, your waist, your, your blood pressure, all these different things that you have to meet, but I want to speak to this a little bit different. So if you think about insulin resistance, it's really the body's diminished response to insulin. So Again, many people understand that insulin is a, you know, the hormone that regulates blood sugar, but there's so much more to it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, not only do you have elevated blood sugar levels when you have 
an issue with your body's response to it, but you have increased abdominal fat, you have high blood pressure, um, it can mess with your cholesterol levels and increased risk for type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And this is kind of gets to the point, especially when I see patients who have tried to embrace a whole food plant-based diet or more plant-based leaning, and they still have higher cholesterol levels, this might be part of that reason. And so then we, we talk about how do we structure our interventions to help that. <clears throat> so just to kind of make this a big picture, this is my <laughs> attempt at making art with, you know, a little PowerPoint. So here's my tree, if you can still see. Here are the roots, right? So we understand genetics plays a small part in many things, but we also understand genetics is really just the, the stage, but we really have to pull the trigger, right? So you say genetics loads a gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. And this and the same here goes for sure. But there are some genetic factors that make some individuals more prone to be insulin resistance at, let's say, a different body weight than uh, someone else, uh, certain ethnicities and different things. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, of course, poor sleep, chronic stress, poor diet with excess calories, sedentary lifestyle. And then, of course, this kind of leads into this. Poor diet leads into excess body fat and low muscle mass. And these kind of feed into each other. Um, now, this can all lead to the insulin resistance, which I'm going to get into deeper here in a minute on how you actually discover if you have insulin resistance. But if you think about this, this is a base or the foundation of many, many things. And of course, many of these things are multifactorial. So cardiovascular disease is multifactorial. Type 2 diabetes, it's pretty tightly wound to insulin resistance, but again, it can be multifactorial. Kidney disease, multifactorial. But what I wanted to speak to is just like I said, I want to kind of bring the lens into a common uh, language that may be helpful for some, for some people. It's like, okay, if I see some improvement in my insulin resistance and how I measure that, I should start seeing improvement in all of these versus getting overwhelmed with, oh my goodness, I need to do this for my fatty liver disease. I need to do this for my heart disease. I need to do this for my type 2 base. Why don't we look at it through the lens of something that's a little bit easier to understand <laughs> once you understand the definition? So we're going to speak to how insulin resistance causes cognitive impairment, cardiovascular disease, and that encompasses hypertension, dyslipidemia or abnormal cholesterol levels, increased risk for stroke, type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, chronic kidney disease, fatty liver, and of course, inflammation here. Okay, so first, let's just jump right in. And I'm not going to go into deep, deep detail. Um, I did a workshop, and it's it's also, you can play it back on my website, drmarbus.com, all about this and an ebook that explains it all. But I want to give us a high-level approach to this. How does insulin resistance cause cognitive impairment? Well, first of all, you know, the brain uses 20% of our glucose that's available in our body every single day. So it's a very metabolically active organ. It's only three pounds, but there's a lot going on in there. So when you have insulin resistance, if there's an impaired glucose metabolism in the brain, you can have neurovascular dysfunction, um, inflammation, more oxidative stress. You have insulin signaling issues in the brain, hormones dysregulation, and again, lipid metabolism abnormalities. Remember, the brain is made up of a lot of fat. So there, obviously, if there's lipid metabolism abnormalities, there's going to be issues. And then vascular contributions, right? So if we understand that um, insulin resistance can cause problems with your heart arteries, that can also cause problems with the arteries going up to the brain so and into the brain. So that's an issue. Jumping along to cardiovascular disease, 
really interesting when you think about insulin resistance, how it can increase sympathetic activation, which causes your blood pressure to go up. So remember the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are kind of a yin and yang. And when you have insulin resistance, that sympathetic nervous system ups the tension um, and can increase your risk for hypertension. It also causes sodium retention and vascular effects. So meaning if you, we understand if we eat too much sodium, that your vasculature, your blood vessels can harden. It also um, retains fluid. So that increases your risk for hypertension. And it also um, causes problems with the endothelial dysfunction. If, as many of you are aware of Dr. Esselstyn's work, you know, that lovely little layer of cells inside the arteries, if there's some dysfunction there, that also obviously increases risk for many things beyond hypertension. Then of course there's dyslipidemia. So the interesting thing with insulin resistance, it can really affect how um, certain components of the cascade of the cholesterol molecules are made. So for example, you'll see an increased VLDL. This is very low density lipoprotein production. So if you understand the progression, VLDL goes to IDL, goes to LDL. So this is baby, you can think of it as early, uh, an early type of LDL, the bad cholesterol. Um, it just has a different uh, amount of um, uh, fatty acids like triglycerides and um, uh, the actual cholesterol. So if you have an increased production of VLDL, that will eventually lead to increased production of H or excuse me, LDL. And you actually have a decreased HDL cholesterol as well. Then there's a whole, I could speak for an hour just on that whole system that's occurring here, but your body is trying to deal with this insulin resistance piece. And it's really interesting how the liver and all of this interplay. So when we look at your cholesterol numbers, it's much more than just removing cholesterol from your diet, eating these anti-inflammatory rich foods, there's more to it than we need to address. And many times this can be an issue of insulin resistance, lowering our body weight, increasing our, or I should, I would say lower our body fat percentage, increasing lean muscle mass. This is a big piece of that. But anyway, that is a really interesting discussion. Of course, stroke risk, um, atherogenesis means that the, there's plaque inside the arteries. It's promoted by um, insulin resistance, you have pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic state, meaning inflammation, of course, we understand is the basis of most chronic disease. And pro-thrombotic means that it can increase the risk of a blood clot. So if you have a blood clot in the arteries that are going to the brain, that can cause a particular type of stroke. And then there's some interesting play, of course, with hypertension and the dyslipidemia. So if you have higher blood pressure and you have atherosclerosis, um, yeah, so that's going to increase your risk again for stroke. And then there's actually some really interesting direct effects on the heart, what we call cardiac remodeling, um, where the actual muscle of the heart changes based on the insulin resistance. Um, when you think about type 2 diabetes, I think this makes a little bit more sense for people because that's where most of us would, our minds go straight to diabetes. So basically, first of all, when you have the development of insulin resistance, there's what we call compensatory hyperinsulinemia. So your body, your beta cells are producing more insulin to deal with this blood sugar, right? That keeps trending upward. The poor beta cells in the pancreas that make insulin have dysfunction and increased risk of failure. Um, then you eventually get inadequate insulin production. So that's an issue. And now remember that just beyond the fact that you're not making enough insulin, you're insulin resistant. So that also means that your liver is insulin resistant. So your liver <clears throat> can store glucose as a means of 
allowing producing glucose, for example, or into the stream bloodstream when you're in a state of fasting, or let's say you're um, exercising and you need more glucose, your your liver will release glucose. But now imagine if the liver is insulin resistant, it's not listening to insulin saying, hey, we have glucose in our system. You don't need to release it. The, the liver is going, hmm, I don't see any insulin or I don't see enough of it. I'm just going to keep continue releasing more glucose into the bloodstream. So that's where you'll see this elevation of blood sugar as well. And some, you know, many diabetic medications decrease the liver's ability to release glucose. So this is an interesting pathway the medications are already dealing with. And then of course we have inflammatory um, and the um, certain hormones that are released by the adipose tissue. That's what we call the adipokine pathways. So those um, fatty cells that are under our skin, right? We can pinch the fat under our skin. They actually think of this as an organ, right? So they release hormones. And some of these are actually anti-inflammatory hormones. And so when you have a decreased uh, release of some of these, they can actually increase your risk of inflammation. So there's such a complex interplay with everything that's involved. Um, so I, I don't want to do this to just kind of overwhelm you with all this information. I'm just trying to show you that it touches so many different things. And we'll continue. And then we'll get to the point where I can show you how do you know if you're insulin resistant and then what you can do about it real quick. Um, of course, there's inflammation. I mentioned the adipose tissue dysfunction that actually activates inflammatory pathways. You have oxidative stress. Um, it also causes what we call visceral adiposity. So if you think about it, um, let's say we have someone who has gained a certain amount of weight and by their genetics or which is typically genetically uh, derived that your fat stores are now gone to beyond capacity. So they actually will outstrip their ability to um, get their nutrition. So remember, uh, like I said, uh, adipose tissue or fat tissue is like an organ, it needs blood to get um, one, it can, the transport of fat cells for further uh, storage, but also to feed it, um, nutrition and different things. Now, if you have a fat cell that has outgrown its capacity to store fat, what happens here is it starts to break down and that causes inflammation. And the way it causes inflammation is like, hey, uh, immune system, I'm breaking down here. I need some cells to come and clean this up. And so that immune system is just responding the way it would anything. And that's pro-inflammatory response. And that occurs everywhere. For example, I've had patients who were, you know, beyond obesity, morbid obesity, and you'll see this chronic inflammation. White blood cells are constantly elevated outside the normal, not super high beyond like, you know, probably one to two points above what would be considered normal. And then when they start to lose weight, that dramatically decreases. And that is part of that reason. And the reason I'm, I'm sharing how this information, or excuse me, what happens is now you have the body directing the actual fat storage inside the visceral area. So like the, around the visceral organs, around the heart, around the liver, around the different organs inside the, um, Think about the belly abdominal region and that's why you may have always heard so people who store fat and look more like you know a round ball more abdominal fat they're at higher risk for heart disease versus someone who's more pear-shaped when they store fat because of this inflammatory process that's occurring um, and then of course i mentioned the immune cell activation which occurs when the body um, has surpassed its ability to store fat 
and the subcutaneous fat underneath the skin, which is where it's supposed to be stored. Now, chronic kidney disease, of course, we look at, this is again, multifactorial, you know, diabetes is the number one cause of uh, chronic kidney disease, but I wanted to mention a few different things. Um, when you have elevated insulin, remember when you have insulin resistance, the body's trying to produce more insulin. So you, they're like, hey, the blood sugar's not being dealt with, I need to make more insulin. The insulin in of itself being high has certain effects on the body. And in the kidney, it causes hyperfiltration, meaning that it's really running more of the blood through the kidney to be filtered. Um, you can, again, have that endothelial dysfunction, which I mentioned, there's activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So the RAS, um, what can happen here is you can have increased uh, high blood pressure, um, which because there's several things, again, remember all these things interplay. You have albinuria, which is basically the protein inside uh, the urine where it shouldn't be. We want to maintain the protein within the bloodstream, but when there's been damage to the kidneys, you can see protein in uh, the urine. Again, of course, insulin resistance feeds diabetes, diabetes feeds into kidney disease, and you get into this really severe um, cycle. Again, we mentioned back in high blood pressure, sodium retention, volume expansion, which puts more stress on the kidneys. Remember the kidneys also um, maintain the sodium potassium uh, levels in your body. It's what it does. It's very sensitive to those things. And then lipotoxicity. So there's, you know, storage of fat into the kidneys can cause damage and get inflammation. So again, we have one more thing. The liver is such an important organ. We have a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, it's really important to understand we hear um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but then this can also go to something else called NASH. So I'm going to get to that here in a second. But first, you have increased what we call lipolysis and free fatty acids. So the body's producing or releasing more fats into the bloodstream. Um, you have uh, more of this occurring. So the body has to store it. So it stores it in the liver. You have impaired fatty acid oxidation. You have, again, that very complicated um, cholesterol uh, um, system. And again, I could go into much more deeper discussion about this, but just understand that what's happening is that you're having a problem with the fatty acid production release and how it's exported to different parts of the body and it gets stored inside the liver itself. This causes inflammation in progression to what we call NASH. And that's when we actually get um, the liver enzymes being elevated in someone who has fatty liver so, which then this can lead to cirrhosis, which is starring down of the liver. And then you can increase risk for, for example, liver cancer. All right. So again, just going to go through this very quickly. Insulin resistance causes obesity, which bright impairs the metabolic regulation. You get the higher insulin, you get increased hunger and decreased satiety signals because hormones like leptin and ghrelin are not being released properly. You become more leptin resistant, which tells you hey, I must still be hungry. So that's causing more calories to be consumed, which feeds the obesity. The obesity feeds back into insulin resistance. You mentioned, I mentioned the adipose tissue expansion dysfunction as it's being stored, which releases more inflammation, more free fatty acid breakdown and more hormonal changes. So it's like this really serious beast that just feeds into itself. Okay, so with all of that bad news, how do we diagnose insulin resistance? So. I just wanted to highlight with all that I spoke to, because I could literally, my workshop went over an hour and a half explaining each of those in detail, 
Um, really just wanted to give you an understanding that if we look at the lens of insulin resistance, I think it might be an easier way to understand if you're making progress towards, you know, becoming healthier or not. Um, and there's a few different things you can do. There's actually a fasting glucose, of course. Let's see where your blood sugars. We'd like to probably see that under 90 most of the time. So let's say you see trends going upwards above 90. Like last year, you were 85. Maybe two years later, you're 91. Then you're like 98. Then you're 102. And sometimes doctors don't even jump on anybody that's even in that lower 100s. We should be seeing this trend that's occurring. So keep in mind that fasting glucose, that's a pretty simple way to do this. <laughs> There's hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of how sticky your red blood cells are over the course of two to three months. Of course, the normal is less than 5.7. But I'd also say if you start seeing trends, if you've always been in the like, let's say 5.0 or 5.1, now you're starting to see trends upward moving towards 5.4, 5.5, 5.6. Hmm, what's going on here? Was there some extra weight gain? Was there something else that's occurring? Are you on medications that could be causing an elevated glucose? So again, we want to pay attention as you start turning upwards. And then of course, if you hit prediabetes, that should absolutely be a trigger to do something. And then we look at fasting insulin. So when you look at fasting insulin, this tells me your baseline blood sugar and how much your body is having to produce insulin to deal with it. And you want that number to be under 5.5 um, when you test it. And then of course we have liver function tests. This kind of corresponds to if you have fatty liver disease, now it's kind of progressed to that NASH. Um, and that can be an issue. Of course we have um, our lipid profile. We wanna look at triglycerides. When you look at standard lipid profile results, you'll see under 150. Okay, well, let's say today it was 149 and your doctor says, okay, that is fine. Um, but next year, let's say it's 160 okay, now we've certainly just this 150, this arbitrary number and you were okay, but you're not. But I would argue that I would say when you look at the studies, you really want this even to be lower, probably under 80, definitely under hundred, but if you can get it lower, that's even better. Cause what that tells me that these free fatty acids aren't hanging around in your blood system um, and need to be stored somewhere. <clears throat> so triglycerides are a good measure of those um, and just something to pay attention to. And of course your HDL, we don't want it too high. We don't want it too low, but we will see, of course, in people who eat a whole food plant-based diet, a lower HDL. So if your overall, everything else is looking great, your blood sugar, all these other things, and you have a lower HDL, I'd be less concerned. But let's say I have someone in, whose LDL has gone up and their HDL has decreased. Um, that's an issue that we might be moving in towards insulin resistance. And now sometimes we have individuals who, let's say, are anemic or unable to measure an A1C and it's not super helpful. We can measure what we call fructosamine. Now this is taking albumin and it's another protein. It's saying how sticky is your albumin? And it's only good for maybe two to three weeks of measurements. There's another measurement we can actually measure your, um, it's called the HOMA IR. It's actually measuring insulin resistance. So it takes you know, your fasting glucose, a fasting insulin, and there's a little calculation you can do. You could ask your doctor to check this for you. You can order at Quest or LabCorp, I'm sure other labs as well. But you can also just, you know, get the calculation if you're, they'll get a fasting insulin and fasting glucose for you and do the calculation yourself. And then of course there's HSCRP, um, which looks like I, my uh, PowerPoint's trying to correct itself. Of course, this is the um, inflammation measures that many of us have, Heard about, um, of course, we understand that when you look at heart disease, again, multifactorial, 
LDL is absolutely very important, but so is inflammation. And we want this to be as low as possible, preferably under one. And then the last one is an oral glucose tolerance test. I would say probably this is the least helpful, but you will see it in women who are pregnant. They'll utilize this often. They'll give you a drink that's probably equivalent of around 18 teaspoons of sugar. And you take it fasting and then they measure your blood sugar before you take it. And they measure it two hours later. Every time I've been pregnant, three, you know, I've had three babies and oh, I am pretty sure I'm close to throwing up every time because it's just such an overwhelming sugar load. But what you want to see here is because there's certain states of um, that uh, just being older, for example, menopause, pregnancy, puberty, these uh, certain natural states uh, can actually increase insulin resistance. And if you have, let's say, genetic propensity for insulin resistance, they want to check this because we don't want to have you go straight to overt diabetes while you're pregnant. We need to deal with that. So anyway, um, what you'll want to see is your blood sugar less than 140 two hours after drinking that very uh, intense sugary uh, drink. Okay, some other things that you can measure is waist circumference. Um, you'll definitely want to make sure that you're doing certain things to, to manage that. Um, again, we could look at BMI. The problem with BMI, <clears throat> excuse me, is that I could have someone, like for example, when I was in the Air Force, I could have two people that are, let's say a 26 BMI, someone who is low muscle mass and overweight. And then I could have someone who is younger with, you know, weightlifting, very low body fat, those two BMIs are very different, right? So really important thing to manage and or think about that. <clears throat> when you look at um, the numbers, uh, let me go back here. I was going to grab the numbers specifically for you. Whoops. I got you there. Let me grab this here. Okay. I get a lot of questions people ask about what exact numbers should I be? Remember, this gets back to also the visceral fat uh, storage, and we want to make sure that that waste is lower. Um, I'll get that in a minute for you. I'm going to get on here. Waist to hip ratio, you want to look at that as well, um, because when you think about the waist to hip ratio, this will tell you, are you more of that pear shape versus the kind of the apple storage fat, you know, uh, a fat there in the middle. Um, let me see here. Gonna grab, yes. So when we look at your, when we look at your body waist circumference, so waist circumference greater than 40 inches or 102 centimeters in men, and then 35 inches and 88 centimeters in women, that indicates what that, that what we call that central adiposity or that where that storage is being, uh, of fat is being in the visceral organs. Um, and then the waist to hip ratio, um, basically you divide your waist circumference by your hip circumference. So greater than 0.9 in men and 0.85 in women is concerning for insulin resistance. And then of course, body fat percentage, these are arbitrary, but when anytime you can, if you can get it measured, there's many different ways to do this. You could do a DEXA scan that's made for that. You could do calipers, you could do um, there are different uh, formulas you can utilize with measuring like your neck, your waist, your hips. There's a few other things. Um, you could do online and, and see the best way to do this. But when you look at body fat in men, over 25% in men and over 30% in women is considered high. And so those can be, again, an increased risk. And then, of course, we want to look at your lean muscle percentage. 
And there's, again, you'll need a few tools to do this, but remember the lower lean muscle mass reduces the body's capacity for glucose utilization. So it uses up that glucose. So that can predispose you to insulin resistance. So skeletal muscle is also uh, a very important piece. And I can tell people this is your metabolic furnace. So the more muscle mass you have, it helps you in so many ways. So I just want to think about when we look at what we should be doing, this is going to have a big play here. So what should, can we do? So when we think about what we can do for insulin resistance, it all goes back to all those things that we know we should do, but we really struggle with. Um, and so what lifestyle medicine is all about, literally. And so let me grab my, here we go. Source wounding cause exercise is obviously very important. So when we think about exercise, there's two pieces. <clears throat> and I really wanted you to, to focus in, again, there's an aerobic component, um, cardiovascular importance. It, you know, at least it could be walking, running, cycling, swimming, all those are very helpful. Um, but also we want to look at uh, resistance training. So that increases your muscle mass and insulin sensitivity. Um, it increases what we call in insulin receptor upregulation, meaning that more insulin can be taken up into the muscle with exercise. It's called a GLUT4 transporter, really fascinating, cool stuff. It enhances glycogen storage. So all those things together, if you can do resistance training and cardiovascular, so, you know, they minimally 150 minutes of some type of cardiovascular training per week. That's could be five days of 30 minutes. It could be, uh, you know, divide however you want to do, do that division. It could be 10, three times a day for 30 minutes. Again, lots of different ways you can do this. There's no right or wrong way, just however you can fit it in consistently. Um, and then of course there's these synergistic effects, right? So when you combine aerobic and resistance training, you get just this continual improvement. And that's the really important piece. If you can combine them together, you get more than just the one alone. Of course, I'm a big fan of the whole food plant-based diet. That's what I'm going to tell you to emphasize vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Um, minimize the processed foods and added sugars in animal products for a variety of reasons. But, you know, plant-based diets are high in dietary fiber, which slows the absorption of glucose. This prevents the rapid spikes of blood sugar and insulin levels. Again, that hyperinsulinemia is an issue. It also uh, enhances a healthy gut microbiome, which has also been linked to improved glucose metabolism. There's antioxidants, phytonutrients, um, which reduce oxidative stress and inflammation. So many of my patients who have like, let's say, chronic joint pain, inflammation, they go to a whole food plant-based diet. That is one of the first things they notice is, wow, I have less pain. And so that's amazing. And then of course we have different types of healthy fats and plants. So these are lower in saturated fats and they're higher in what we call polyunsaturated fats, which are more beneficial. And then we have lower glycemic foods, right? So when you think about <clears throat> foods, they can cause a particular response in individuals for their blood sugar. So certain foods can cause a higher response. So if you have processed foods, sugary drinks, you know, um, processed grains like bagels and different things, that can cause a higher rise of blood sugars than eating whole plant foods. So those, remember it's the whole food that's the important here. So it helps regulate your blood sugar. It reduces your poor beta cells from being stressed out. <laughs> and again, really important ones here are whole grains, legumes, fruits, veggies, all of those are so important. Um, sleep quality, really fascinating. Um, <laughs> when you think about the sleep, for example, <clears throat> when you do not get um, adequate sleep, 
just for hypertension alone, for example, you don't get a, what we call a nocturnal dipping and that can increase your risk for hypertension. Again, um, so many things here, but that also causes more stress. It causes a uh, uptick in your sympathetic nervous system. So that causes more inflammation. There's really interesting research showing that just how um, much sleep you or don't get, or when you go to sleep, like example, when you have people who work overnight shifts, they're more prone to being insulin resistant. You're more insulin sensitive in the morning versus you are in the evening. Um, so what can you do here? You know, really try to regulate your sleep schedule. Um, it's really important there to try to get, you know, if you go to bed, let's say at 10 and you wake up at six, try to do that even on weekends. Some people try to sleep later in, but that can, again, we wanted, this is your circadian rhythm. We really want that, keep that um, aligned. Um, make sure your sleep environment's optimized. You really want to be free from things like noise and light. Um, you want to make sure you have a comfortable pillow. The room is nice and dark. It's cool. Probably anywhere between 66, 68 degrees Fahrenheit is important. That'll help you um, promote your onset of deeper sleep stages. And then really think about this. This is where the restorative processes occur inside the brain. And then of course, you've all know we shouldn't minimize exposure to that blue light that comes from screens before bedtime. It's important because this can inhibit melatonin production. Okay. So then delaying your sleep onset. And of course, caffeine afternoon is probably not a good idea. Um, <clears throat> I think there's also just want to highlight the circadian rhythm alignment. So when it uh, um, comes to sleep, so what that means is you want to have daylight exposure, particularly in the morning, because this reinforces your natural circadian rhythm, right? So that light acts like a cue to a particular part in the brain, um, telling the body, okay, so, and then let's say 16 hours, I'm going to start really increasing, ramping up my melatonin, and that'll be time for sleep. And then darkness in the evening. So maintaining a darker sleeping environment as you start getting ready for sleep. So, you know, some people think, okay, we're going to bed at 10, turn off everything right at 10. I say give yourself a, like 30 to 45 minutes to kind of just get into a routine of, so the body is preparing itself for sleep. You may find that your sleep quality improves. And really another important thing to understand is that with circadian rhythm alignment, you really want to see has an impact on hormone balance. Um, so it, it regulates hormones like cortisol and growth hormone, um, which also have, a, you know, direct and indirect effects on your glucose and metabolism and your insulin sensitivity. So again, some things to think about, of course, stress management. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I think we just live in a world where we're just used to dealing with stress. What can we do? I'll just give you some ideas here. Of course, mindfulness, meditation. What do these do? Well, they reduce cortisol levels. They cause um, the sympathetic nervous system to you know improve. It kind of diminishes its activity, heightens your parasympathetic response. So there's some importance there. Um, and yoga, you could do deep breathing, anything that you find that relaxes you and helps you decrease that kind of tense, uh, tightness and stress that we're constantly dealing with. Um, again, there's so many things that you could do just talking about dealing with stress, but it's really important if you think about it to take the time to allow yourself to hone in and use these tools every day because they're like a the muscle. The more you use it, the better you'll get, the more likely you'll continue to use it. So if you know that there's going to be a stressful email, maybe doing a few rounds of a deep breathing, like box breathing, four, seven, eight breathing, whatever breathing techniques, it's really simple. It's very portable. <laughs> you just take it with you. Um, that might help you um, deal with that. Maybe um, being mindful of how you're going to respond again, 
so many things to, to do that we can improve with our stress. And of course, weight management, um, just eating a whole food plant-based diet in and of itself is such a huge emphasis on losing weight because you'll already have a kind of a caloric deficit by eating a whole food plant-based diet. Um, but regular physical activity will help with this. Behavioral changes, being mindful of when you're eating, eating, sitting down at a table, not in front of the screen. I understand I'm the worst. I work and eat on a regular basis. I need to sit down and be mindful <laughs> of my eating. Um, I will say and that is one thing I'm really working on, but it's really hard. <laughs> um, and then I think what's nice about this also, it helps you understand hunger cues when you're mindful of the process of eating and those hunger cues, you know, what is true hunger versus emotional hunger or just maybe habitual hunger? Like, well, it's 1030, even though you ate like an hour ago, are you really hungry? No, maybe it's just a habit you do eat. So again, lots of different things to do. Remember, long-term weight management is, is successful when you have ease into these different lifestyle changes. They don't have to be all at once, but just pick one and start working on it. And then as that gets going, it'll get easier and you'll start noticing you make better and healthier uh, choices throughout your day. And again, that's compounded, right? So it's it's not, oh, I'm going to get better uh, in 30 days. It, this is a lifetime um, prescription, right? We want to see you making these day-to-day changes and really give yourself minimally six months uh, 12 months before you're like, oh, I give up. I, I can't lose this weight or, oh, I can't reverse my diabetes or, oh, I can't, whatever. Give yourself time. Again, it took you, most of us decades to get sick. It's going to take a little time to get well. So wanted to- Merry Christmas, that. everyone. And welcome to Chef like, Aging Live. I'm your host, AJ. And this oh. is where I introduce you to amazing Hello. people. Oh, so anyway, so I hope that was helpful, everyone. Um, stop sharing that. But uh, that really is the really important piece. I wanted to highlight the insulin resistance uh, component of chronic disease. And if we can kind of hone in on that, um, maybe that might be a little bit easier. But it's a very big topic. And I think it's just it's a new way to, to speak about chronic disease. Nope. I don't have access to any of the questions. Lori, just, yes, just give me a second because my computer is going crazy. Just talk to people for another second. Uh, sure, sure, no problem. Um, so I think I think one thing. I hope you guys, if you have any questions, I just want to speak to. I do have a glucose mastermind class that I run every three months, and we do a deep dive into again glucose metabolism. We speak about insulin resistance and provide a CGM. I also have another insulin overcoming insulin resistance class coming up, probably starting in January. I have a workshop. I have lots of other free resources on the website. So hopefully that would be um, helpful for you. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry about that. My computer okay. started playing and I was trying to, uh, next time I'll use the chat, but it's perfect now. And great. Do you have time to answer a few questions? Yeah. Yes, um, yes. Try to pick the ones on the topic, but a couple might have come in without uh, oh, not sure. the topic. But TS says, is there a difference in accuracy with a CGM that does not test actual blood and a glucose monitor that uses the little strips that require a little bit of blood? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll be quite amazed at the technology where it's come. So I've been utilizing CGMs for probably six or seven years with patients, and I've worn them myself multiple times. And the newer ones are pretty accurate. I mean, I have patients who are making insulin decisions based on their CGM data, meaning they're dosing insulin. If they're like, like a type one diabetic or type two diabetic that requires insulin, 
they are using that information to dose insulin, which can have dire consequences if it's inaccurate. So over time, we learn how accurate that is for a patient, but you're absolutely right. That's using the actual blood is the glucometer, the little strips versus a CGM, which is using the interstitial fluid between the cells. There can be a delay around 15 minutes. So they say from you know what you'll see in your blood to your uh, CGM data, but many times I see it's pretty close. But you do want to be mindful that that is always technology can always fail. If you see something that's like, huh, your blood sugar is 50 and you feel okay, probably should check a blood <laughs> glucometer and make sure that it's okay. Or if it's saying, holy moly, your blood sugar is 300. Before, let's say I had a diabetic who was going to dose, that's like always double check to make sure we don't overdose the insulin. So absolutely very valid point. Yeah. That, that must be uh, annoying to always have to stick your finger because I, I had a yes. group once for a test and it's like, it hurt. Like it hurt for days. <laughs> and, and I asked them to, you know, cause I got that, that, what that omega three thing, which I'm told mm -hmm. is much more accurate if you do through the vein anyway, but I mean, it hurt for days. It throbbed and I can't imagine people doing it. They, they must get like calluses. huh? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very painful. I have one too. Cause Again, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm understanding my patient's experience and I want to, I just want to be better prepared. It does. I, I did it once and I was like, hmm. <laughs> I'm, no, you I'm know, not going to worry about it. <laughs> I agree with you. It's like, you want to know what other people are feeling before you do to them. When I was a respiratory therapist, I actually had a blood gas. I had tried to have somebody suction me and it's like terrible. Oh. You know, it's like, I, I don't like this. How could I do this to you? Because yeah. yeah. we have so much empathy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a few questions that were sent in. Yeah. However, um, not all of them are on this topic. So let's That's fine. find the ones on the topic first. The first one is, and it's from Sheba. And she says, what is the easiest way to figure out the cause of high blood glucose levels, insulin resistance, or pancreas beta cell sufficiency? Some doctors use BMI or stomach size, but I've read that South Asians can develop insulin resistance even at lower BMIs than Caucasians, even when they look thin. Glucose tolerance tests might not be practical for many people. Change. Right. No, that's a good point. So I would say, you know, one, you want to look at your A1C, what is your fasting blood sugar? So if you're seeing that trending upward, if you want to start looking at the reasons, those would be all those things that I listed, all those labs, and then looking into it and saying, okay, what's going on? Is this actual insulin resistance or is there a, something else causing the glucose to be elevated? Maybe your pancreas isn't making enough insulin because there's some late onset of a type one or one and a half uh, diabetes in someone, that's always a possibility. So, um, again, this could be a matter of maybe they need to lose a little bit more body fat, work out and do some more resistance training. So I would check the HOMA dash IR again, that's, uh, there's a little formula you can, um, do with your fasting insulin and your fasting glucose. That's a great thing. Cause if that's normal in your healthy body weight, let's say BMI under probably 23, um, or a body fat percentage that's you know healthy for you at your age, um, and you're strong and you're doing resistance resistance. There's other things that we need to look at. Maybe there's medications that you're on that's causing elevated blood sugars. Maybe you're anemic. Um, lots of different things can be occurring here. So, Great. thank you. Uh, Susan would like to know. She has a DEXA score of minus 4.0 in her forearms, and trying to figure out if lifting weights would be dangerous. I do know that she's a little bit older, like she's I yeah. think at least 70. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, it doesn't have to be just lifting weights. You could do some bands and things, but this is where I say it's, you know, you have a significant 
um, DEXA score. That T-score tells me you have pretty severe osteoporosis. So a few different things. There's many things you can do lifestyle ways to improve your score. But um, I did an entire workshop. There's a hype up. 40 page ebook on it on my website, all about osteoporosis, if you want to check that out. But what I would recommend is you ask your doctor for referral for a physical therapist who specializes in osteoporosis, and they look at you with all of your scores, and then they devise a plan that's safe for you and monitor you and teach you how to do those, and then teach you how to progress so that you can see that improvement. The other thing is really important to make sure that you're getting all the sufficient nutrients to allow your body to build healthier bones like vitamin D, make sure your calcium is sufficient, um, protein status, all these things are very, very important. So again, that's why I went into a really detailed deep dive. I do monthly workshops for my healing kitchen members holy moly. And I, I've got so many great responses and questions about that. And really think it's a topic that hasn't been discussed and it's vital. Thanks. This is about nails from Renee. Mm. I have been whole food plant-based sofas free for almost four years and I have ridges on my nails. What do you recommend? Um, so there could be a few different things. You probably need some, a uh, few blood tests to check, you know, iron, magnesium, some other things, uh, just to make sure everything's looking okay. Not anemic B12, all those things. I would do some blood work. Blood work. Cool. And you can do virtual. Yeah. Like, I, I see patients a hundred. Yeah. Across the entire United States. Yeah, you're, you're, you're like every state. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. All 50 states in DC. And then we can order labs at Quest, LabCorp. Um, where I have national accounts, or sometimes people will want to use lives, a, a different lab, and I'll just write the order and they can take the order themselves there. That's cool. Every state doesn't matter where you are. Uh, this is from Joyce. She's whole food plant-based, 61, has no health issues, not taking any meds. She says, if I sleep with my fingers extended, hands are flat, I wake up with stiff fingers, which will return to normal after making a fist and stretching them. If I hmm. sleep with my fingers bent, I don't have this problem. I've had this for many years and I have a sister with the same issue. No signs of arthritis or inflammation. I have sensitivities to cherries and bananas or any foods that you know of. Maybe she should wear a brace. Well, she... it's either that or, um, I don't know. When you look at, I think can think carpal tunnel can cause pain, but it shouldn't get better necessarily with movement. Maybe it's how you're sleeping. If you're sleeping in a hyperextended state, you know, like if your mattress is very soft and you're stretching it that way. Um, what I think is maybe doing some wrist, um, you know, you could strengthen the forearm muscles. You could just do some different types of stretching. We sit and don't utilize our, our, our arms. We don't even, you know, how was the last time you put your arm above your head, unless you're putting away a dish or, <laughs> or hanging a picture, right? We don't move things like we normally should. So maybe there's some things you can do to improve your wrist health by just, you know, extension and you have, um, you know, basically bending and extending your, your wrist that way circles. Um, but I would like also how you're sleeping. Cause maybe you're sleeping under your pillow, because I know I'm a side sleeper and I will sometimes sleep with my hand gets a little bit that can cause some discomfort and some stiffness. Lots of things could be that. <laughs> yeah. You never know what happens when you're sleeping. Right. You're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe if she sleeps, if she has somebody she's sleeping with, they can like look yeah. and say, or she could try a brace too and see if that works. Um, uh, Cause it would keep the wrist straight. I don't know yeah. how comfortable it'd be, but yeah. Interesting. Nancy says, Dr. Marvis, I just heard about a prebiotic 
postbiotic fermented drink from Japan called Koso, K-O-S-O. It's supposed to be a combination of many fruits and vegetables that have been fermented for a year. Have you heard of this? And is it likely to be healthy? I have no idea, but fermented foods are always a, a nice option to consider. So I would just do your research, but I am personally not familiar with that. No. <laughs> nice. Let's see if any questions. Uh, if you guys have questions in the chat, I can take them. Sometimes they're anonymous. Let's see if we can get this one. Nope, that's not for a medical doctor. That's more of a Dr. Lyle. What, what did you do for the holidays and what are you going to do for the next holiday? Oh, um, well, for the holidays, we were still here in California, Southern California, and um, we just, my family came and they're still here. So we're spending the rest of the week uh, exploring Southern California coast and uh, just enjoying being time together. It's, it's, it's hard when all the, the kids grow up and they leave. It's like, I miss them. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, we were talking about that yesterday because we don't have kids, but I said, to, you know, because we have a lot of friends yeah. that do like their kids are visiting for the one week a year. And I said to Charles, can you imagine like if Bailey only came and visited us once a year? You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, I know. I, I mean, so I get yes. it. I, I get it. Yeah. Huh? I would be heartbroken if my dog Daisy left me and came only once a year. Once but a week. That's why I go and I go and visit them regularly. I was like, well, mom's coming. They're like, okay. <laughs> you know, in the old days, your kids never left. You know, I've, Dr. Lyle talks about how we lived in a village of 50. Everybody knew each other. Yeah. Their life, they never left, you know, kind of yeah. missed the, those days of the Waltons, you know. Yeah. Oh. I appreciate that. I, yeah, I, I would don't... consider moving away even from this paradise if I meant I could be closer to my family. That's what yeah. I hear. <laughs> so this is from Anonymous. And Anonymous says, fats are said to gum up the insulin receptor and contribute to insulin resistance. What about whole plant fats from chia seeds and flax seeds? Do you still have to keep those under 10 to 15% of your caloric or dietary intake? And can you please say a word or two on testing for insulin resistance, fasting insulin, HOMA, dash IR, et cetera? Yeah. So that was one of the tests I was mentioning. So you want the fasting insulin, your fasting glucose, and there's again, calculation. That's a great test. Um, it can be very telling for individuals. And um, yes. So when you think about fat from animal products, like saturated fat, <clears throat> that is the, the main concern we have here is um, it is quote unquote gunking up the insulin receptors, many other things that are occurring beyond that inside the cell and such. But yes, that that's a good way to look at it. But the the healthy fats from certain plant foods, like let's say the whole nuts, like walnuts, for example, chia seeds, ground flax, avocado, these are mostly polyunsaturated fats. So these are very healthy fats. They're very important for brain health, the your omega-3s, that is all those different things. So when it comes to the individual and what percentage of body fat you do, not body fat, but fat in the calories, <clears throat> excuse me, it really depends on the person and what we're trying to do here. If we're um, trying to get someone to lose weight, we might want to see pushing it under 15%, right? If we see someone who is struggling to keep weight on, which I have a good number of those patients as well, um, because they struggle to eat enough calories just because they're smaller, typically females, older, who's just appetite, right? The fiber fills them up. So we work on calorie more dense foods so that we can maintain a healthy weight because they get so low. Um, I might tell them to eat more nuts and fats and they might see it creep up a little bit, but we don't typically see a change in their blood sugar numbers or anything. And I've seen thousands and thousands of plant-based eaters after 
geez, 12 years of doing this, uh, plant-based eating specifically. Um, I have worn CGMs. I have CGMs on multiple patients. The only time that I see that it can be an issue is someone is not a healthy weight, body weight and they eat a large amount of nuts. Like I'm talking a cup a day or more and they gain weight, but they're also typically eating some other processed foods. So it's not an isolated, you know, here's your, here's our variable this of one thing we're changing. Um, it's usually multifactorial. So um, again, I think it's very dependent on the patient and where they're at and what their needs are. Um, but I, I see no harm in people eating, for example, females a quarter cup of healthy nuts per day. Oh, nuts promote heart health. There's longevity. Wait, how, how, much, how much did you say? How much did you quarter say? Quarter cup. Handful. Oh, quarter cup. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. about two ounces. Uh, probably, yeah, quarter cup, you know, walnuts, chia seeds, ground flax. I like personally walnuts and pumpkin seeds because great source of zinc, great source of ALA. Um, but then for men, maybe upward, upwards of half a cup a day. Um, again, that's where I've seen, I know I feel better when I eat a healthy, you know, handful of nuts a day. Mentally, I feel better. I have more energy. Um, again, that's just anecdotal for myself, but I see that in also my patients. Cool. Uh, Laura Beth says fasting. How long? How often? Somebody posted 72 hours talks go away. None of the doctors I have on recommend fasting at home by yeah. yourself without medical yeah. supervision. Yeah. And I would definitely tend to agree. So you want to be very mindful. Now, if you want to do time restricted eating, meaning, you know, 16 eights daily, um, or maybe one 24 hour fast, if you have no medications, you're not, for example, type one or type two diabetic, um, again, you definitely want medical supervision, I would say beyond that, because with, you have medications and stuff that can be really gnarly. Um, you can have some issues with electrolytes and a whole variety of things. So, but the 16, eight is a great way to start, right? So you eat within a window of eight hours. I, I would make sure it's earlier day eating, try to stay away from that later evening, uh, eating, especially because you're more insulin resistant in the evening. And then you fast for 16 hours, basically from your last bite to your next meal the next morning. Thank you. Uh, Jane would like to know, what do you recommend for helping someone get the ability to taste back after having COVID? Hmm. That's a, that, I think that's just tincture of time. I haven't seen anything in particular that works really well to, to get someone's taste to return. But over time, I think majority of people that I've worked with have get it back. You know, it, because I've done over 1800 shows, I can't remember everything every guest said, but I do remember something about there's some kind of sniffing program. Like there's- uh, For the lack of smell, right? Because smell is associated oh, with taste. Yeah, right? that's so, right. And, and and so supposedly that helps, but I can't remember who um, said what the program was. It would involve sniffing things. Yeah, you could do something like eucalyptus or some type, maybe frankincense, rosemary, something that's very strong, lemon, something that would awaken your- um, nasal pass your uh, olfactory nerves that might help um so but yeah i would do that multiple times throughout the day if you wanted to use some kind of aromatherapy thanks barbara says i have type 2 took ozempic but it was causing me the side effect of constipation what can i take instead a whole food plant-based diet and reverse it that's what you take instead <laughs> yes so i would <laughs> exactly um yes you start with the whole food plant-based diet you know again you don't need to be overwhelmed by like, oh my goodness, I just gonna, I can't do it overnight. Just start by introducing more fruits and vegetables, beans, whole grains into your diet on a daily basis. Let's say start with breakfast and then maybe you start with uh, breakfast and lunch, breakfast, lunch, dinner. I have a great um, 
I put it up like goodness, four years. It's almost half a million views now of how to start a plant-based diet. I spend about 20 minutes going over exactly how to do it. All the pitfalls to look for. It's free. Just look how to start a plant-based diet. Dr. Lori Marvis on that was easy. It'll pop right up for you. Yeah. That, that sounds great. Uh, Marianne says, I've read that PCOS sufferers often are more prone to insulin resistance. What yes. are your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. So is it, you know, the chicken or the egg type of scenario? Um, does the PCOS cause insulin resistance? Does this resistance cause the PCOS? It's really difficult to say. What I do know is that patients tend to improve dramatically with some of their PCOS symptoms um, when you start utilizing the lifestyle interventions I spoke about, you know, the exercise, the whole food plant-based diet, uh, stress, stress, big one there, sleep, all those things tend to improve the PCOS symptoms. And for example, if you're struggling with fertility, it helps with fertility with those types of symptoms as well. So some things to think about is just, again, incorporating whole food plant-based diet um, and looking at particular lifestyle interventions that might be helpful. Thanks. How do you take care of yourself when you're hit with a bad cold, wonders Anne? <laughs> Um, to hear barking, that's Daisy. Oh. <laughs> I'm very excited about someone delivering something. Uh, so when I get a cold, um, I'm trying to remember the last time I had a cold. I had COVID. That was the only thing I had probably in the last eight or nine years. Um, so if I was to get a cold or I had someone who had a cold, I would, of course, encourage them to rest. Make sure you're doing being very well hydrated. Try to decrease your stress because you need your body to, again, rest and replenish itself and be able to fight whatever is occurring and making sure you're consuming that really healthy whole food plant-based diet, high antioxidant diet, lots of fruits and veggies. Um, soups are great. You can increase your garlic, turmeric, ginger. Um, those are some amazing things. Mushrooms, um, again, feeding your body the nutrients it needs. You may want to, again, make it soup because sometimes you don't have a lot of the appetite, but again, they get some type of form. It's very simple. If you have a really sore throat, again, blended drinks might be helpful, like a smoothie or something. If maybe that'll make it feel better, easier to get down. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, increasing your zinc a little bit and your vitamin C, um, might be helpful for a few days as well. Um, more anecdotal on that <laughs> case reports versus like intensive studies. Um, but yeah, hydration, I think is something that's really uh, undermined with being ill. People are sleeping a lot, so they don't hydrate their bodies and your body needs to be well hydrated in order for your immune system to function adequately. So that's a super easy one to do, but you could do like herbal teas. Um, again, that'll make it feel better or just the water alone. But again, you just want to be very mindful of making sure you're avoiding any dehydrating drinks like coffee and different things, but I would do warm herbal teas instead. Thanks. Uh, Romelda says I'm whole food plant. I don't know what AB means. There's an A, but anyway, my blood pressure has been high in the morning, but it's 110 over 75 in the day. My fingers are hard to bend first thing in the morning and I have headaches too. I'm 55 year old and in menopause. Any advice? Yeah. So um, again, menopause is a funky thing. <laughs> uh, I, you know, some women are st struggle much more than others, um, even if they're eating a whole food plant-based diet, it's lots of different reasons for that. But what I would recommend is um, if your blood pressure is high in the morning, I would ask what that means in the sense of how's your sleep, right? So are you struggling with, do you snore at night? Um, because even if you're a normal body weight, there's like central sleep apnea, you might want to get a sleep study 
and see what's happening because you may be missing that nocturnal dipping. Maybe you're not getting very adequate sleep. I would first go to the precursor thing that's occurring in the morning because if it's better later in the day, that tells me that your vasculature is probably okay, but maybe there's something going on in that nighttime period that your body's trying to deal with. And that's why you're seeing maybe an elevated cortisol, which could lead to elevated blood pressure. That's where my brain goes anyway. Great. Thank you. I think we might have time for one more question. This is from Aaron. I'm trying to get my husband off his type two diabetes medication by lowering his fat intake. He's 85% whole food plant-based, still eats smoked salmon, vegan cheese, but now he eats everything, but his A1C was seven. What can I do? I need to go to hundred percent. All right. So, you know, it's kind of like, do you want to be, it's kind of like, you want to see the hundred percent um, where your body can go and heal itself. You have to do the consistent thing. The number one thing is the whole food plant-based diet, right? Of course, exercise is helpful, <laughs> but if you can get him to start eating one, stop the process, vegan cheese stuff, that's not any good. You know, moving to say like, Hey, let's do this for 30 days or 90 days. That's even better. Repeat an A1C and then see if we can convince him. It's like, let's just do it for 90 days. If you frame it, it's like, this is only for three months or maybe even two months, whatever he'll agree to, but minimally 30 days, preferably 90 days, eating that whole food plant-based diet, exercising. And again, it's going to be really hard to do it without being strictly whole food plant-based um, because that's where you start seeing things change. And then you have to look at other factors. Are there other medications that are causing his elevated blood sugar? Certain things can do that. Um, is his weight need to be decreased? Does he need to you know, gain a little bit more lean muscle mass? Um, lots and lots and lots of different factors there. Great. Do you know anything about citric acid? Cause there's a question about it, but I, I don't, mm, yeah, not really. No. I don't know who to ask about sprinkling it on your food. I don't know anything about it. So we'll find somebody who does. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Happy, healthy new year yeah, to you. You Margaret. too. Thank you. Thanks my, everyone. My pleasure. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 2 PM for one of my favorite plant-based chefs who owned my very favorite restaurant. When I lived in LA Sun Cafe, Chef Ron Russell, he made all the food for the Orange program and he's going to be making lentil bolognese. Take care everyone.